I'm really excited to talk to you today. When Josh asked me, I was super excited. I have a 24-year-old son and a 27-year-old daughter, and so this is an age group that I love. Uh, In fact, last Christmas, there were 20 of them who stayed two weeks at my house. And I I finally told my husband, we better stop buying food. They'll stay if we keep feeding them. And um, it was two carts of Costco, like overflowing to feed them. But I love this age group. It's so fun. Um, I've been married 29 years, and um, my husband works at the Dream Centers. Are you guys familiar with that at all here in town? Yeah, so he's, we get to do ministry together, but I love this topic of leadership. I I was reflecting back over um, how long I've actually been in leadership. I think I started in some leadership capacity in junior high, and I was thinking back to people who put me in leadership long before I should have been leading. Does anybody feel that way? Like, I look back now, and I thought, like, wow, I'm, I'm really mature, and I can do this, but the kinds of things that were entrusted to me long before they should have been. I remember um, I took over, I was going to be the girls director at a high school group. I was just 19 years old. So I was just like barely out of high school myself. And I was going to work along with the youth pastor at the time. And I'm two weeks into it and he resigns. And so then they were like, you can lead it. It was through the whole summer ministry. And I'm leading this high school ministry when I'm only one year older than them. And I'm doing things like all-nighters. Anybody ever do an all-nighter? You're playing broom hockey. You have kids in vans. You're taking them all over the world in the middle of the night, um, bowling, putt-putt golf, things like that. And I'm driving this van at one point thinking, I shouldn't be doing this, and hoping nobody really knows I'm only 19 years old. But there's so many places where when you want to lead, that God will entrust things to you that are probably heavier than uh, you feel like you can hold. And that's a great place to be in, because then there's that, that dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So I would say, looking back over my life, the times I've been the best leader is when I was scared to death. And I was on my knees, and I was asking God, if you don't show up, then this whole thing is going to fall apart, or somebody's going to get hurt, or we're going to get arrested, or something like that. Um, So I was thinking through a lot of leaders that impacted my life. I was thinking of those who were kind leaders. I was thinking of those who were decisive leaders, courageous leaders, bold leaders. I want you to think of a leader who shaped you. Think of a person, their face, their name. Right now, think in your mind, somebody who shaped you. Maybe it was a coach or a teacher or a leader at church. And there's probably something you would say about their leadership that impacted you. And as a young leader, I think we watch how other people lead. And we say, I really want to lead like that. I admire. So I'm hoping that you're thinking of a leader who you admire. But I also, and maybe this is true of you, I also had leaders that were horrible leaders, and they were placed in leadership over me. And I remember, I've learned so much from horrible leaders, because you make these little mental notes. I will never do that. I will never treat someone like that. I will never say that. So we can learn from leaders. But probably about 20 years ago, I was leading in a capacity where I was starting to feel confident. I was starting to feel Like, oh, I've got this. You get this bag of tricks. You kind of are, it's the opposite of the dependence on the Holy Spirit. And I remember the Lord clearly saying, do you want to do this alone or do you want to do this with me? 
I was like, no, I really want to do it with you. And the question that I really felt that the God was asking me was, what, what is going to be your legacy in leadership? That person that you just thought of in your mind, they have a legacy in your life, and you're remembering them for something. And when I really stopped and thought about it, I want people to think I'm kind and decisive and courageous and all those things. But if I had to leave a legacy of leadership, I wanted it to be that my leadership was gospel-centered. That was, the, that was kind of the thing that hit me about 20 years ago, and now I just feel like I can't even teach without somehow the gospel being part of that. Because at the end of the day, that's what remains, this redemptive story that God is writing that we get to be a part of and that we are the ambassadors of passing that good news down to the next generation. So when I think about the gospel, it actually um, is the word for good news, right? It's the word, the Greek word euangelion, and embodied in this word is all the fullness of the Messiah, the salvation, the redemption, the grace, the goodness, but also the giver of the Messiah, the Heavenly Father who loves us and had that intent in his mind. And then it's all the circumstances, people, prophets, everything that led up to the presenting of the Messiah. So the euangelion, the good news, is the whole thing. And I think when I was growing up, I sort of compartmentalized the gospel to be the part in Scripture where Jesus dies and resurrects. Like, that's the gospel story. And the gospel story is the whole thing, because you can't leave a part out of it and have good news, because there are so many layers to it. And so... I was, I've been thinking a lot since I want to be known for gospel-centered leadership. Um, why is it, if this is such good news, why is it that the world doesn't always see it as good news? Why are they so antagonistic to it? Why does it seem like bad news um, or fake news or whatever you want to call it? But why doesn't it seem like good news, okay? So I think it has to do with how we as leaders present the gospel. And I love this quote by Barrett Johnson. He says, the gospel is not about making bad people moral, but about making dead people alive. Wow. If we teach morality without the transforming power of the gospel and the necessity of a life fully surrendered to God's will— then we are raising moral pagans. He goes on to say, do you teach be good because the Bible tells you to? Or do you teach that we will never be good enough without Christ's offer of grace? Because there is a huge difference. One leads to moralism and the other leads to brokenness. One leads to self-righteousness and the other leads to a life that realizes that Christ is everything and nothing else matters. Those are huge words because good news is that you will never be good enough. Yay, that's freeing. Just turn to the person next to you and say, you're never going to be good enough. That's the best news ever. Because if we package the gospel as 
okay, I'm just going to try a little harder next week. I'm going to try a little harder today. I'm going to, I'm going to do this better. I'm going to do this more. I'm going to do this less. If we package the gospel, then that is hanging this enormous weight upon people. That's not good news. The good news is that you're never going to be good enough. Christ is, and he is the good news. So Jesus is at the center of that. So whenever we package it like you have to earn this or deserve it, then it becomes a burden. So it's only good news if Christ does the work for us, and we receive that, okay? So that's at the heart of the gospel. And so often I find that we get inspired by good news. We receive the gift of good news, and then we understand the gospel, but then we pass on something totally different. We pass on a burden. And think about this. Even for you who were raised in Christian homes or were, you were kind of exposed to Christianity at a young age, oftentimes we teach people how to live Christianly before we teach them about Christianity. We teach them how to live Christianly. So this is what we do. We say, oh, you want to receive Christ? Great. Okay, you know what you're going to need to do? Start carving out every Sunday because we're going to want you to be at church. And not only that, um, when you're doing your finances, can you set aside like 10% of that? Because I know you have that just laying around, right? You don't even know what to do with that. And then I want you to set that aside because now you're going to start giving, but not just 10%. You also have to give like more. That would just be like minimum. That's like your tithe. But now we want you to give more like offerings, okay? And not just your money, your time. So now you're going to start serving. I know you're working 40-hour weeks, maybe 50-hour weeks, but we really want you to get involved. Not only that, we want you to get involved in a life group, okay? So you're going to have to carve out some time for that because you have to be in community. And not just a life group at church. You're going to get married on Friday, and then you're going to need to have people of your homes and share meals together. You don't know how to cook. You're going to have to learn how to cook if you're going to be a Christian. (laughs) That's like part of it. We like our food, right? So can you imagine like all these things? Now, I heard you say a swear word earlier. You can't be doing that anymore. Okay. And I don't know. I just smelled a little smoke on you when you came in. Can't be doing that anymore. And I don't, I don't know where you kind of like sipping on the stuff before you came in, like a mimosa. Like that's not really alcohol, right? No, but you can't be doing that anymore. And um, all of these other things. Now, just wait till you have kids because it's going to get worse. You have so many things you're going to have to do right and not do any of them wrong because your kids are going to be watching you. And we put these huge burdens on people instead of, you just said yes to Jesus. Let me tell you about him. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. He gave his life for you. Then he also has given you his spirit to indwell you, to live with you. He's with you constantly to ask him questions, to give you wisdom, to help you understand his word. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And your heavenly father, he's like, he's like a, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he knows them all by name. And if just one leaves, he goes out looking for that one to bring him back. And he'll never, ever give up on you. Let me share more stories. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you about from my life, the way that he's healed me, the way that he's taken sadness and turned it to joy, the way that he's brought trials into my life to refine me, to make me more like him. 
That's how we teach people Christianity. We teach them who Jesus is, who the Heavenly Father is, the role of the Holy Spirit. We, we compel them with our stories. And Paul tells us that as ambassadors of the gospel, we compel people with what? Christ's what? Love. We compel people with Christ's love. We don't compel them with all the things that they should do and all the things that they shouldn't do. That's when we're teaching them to live Christianly. It's our job to teach someone how to live Christianly. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to teach them to die to themselves and then to look to Jesus. So let's look at Colossians 1 because this is the most compelling argument for the gospel, because it's about Jesus. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, says, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For it was God who was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation. That's good news right there. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that it has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul is a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the good news. And When we look at it that way and we package it that way, then that's compelling because I don't know about you, but to say that Jesus has presented me before the Father without blemish and free from accusation, that's good news, right? Okay, so A.W. Tozer says this, it is either all of Christ or none of Christ. I believe we need to preach again a whole Christ to the world. A Christ who does not need our apologies. A Christ who will not be divided. A Christ who will either be Lord of all or will not be Lord at all. Those are some strong words. They were written a very, very long time ago. And yet they're still so fitting. We need to preach the whole Christ. And the whole Christ is that his love compels us. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, Do you not know that it is the love of Christ that brings people to repentance. I think so often we want to tell people their sin. Hey, you're sinning. You shouldn't be living with your boyfriend and girlfriend. You shouldn't be partying so much. You shouldn't be doing that. We're so quick to call out. But 
It's the love of Christ that calls us to repentance. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were guilty as charged. Maybe you got pulled over for a ticket. Maybe you didn't study for an exam. Whatever it is. Maybe you did something growing up in your parents' house and you broke a rule. But I don't know if you've ever done something and you knew guilty as charged, but then you were given grace. That's pretty compelling. That's pretty compelling when somebody gives you grace and you know you're guilty as charged. That makes me want to repent more than any times I was grounded or I was, you know, given my due punishment. It was the grace that wanted, made me want to repent. Why, why do you think we allow other things to become supreme in our life than Christ? When I read Colossians 1, and the amount of times um, Paul says he's all things, before all things, in all things, so that he's over all things. I mean, it's like complete supremacy. No, no thing, no one can trump him. Why do you think we allow other things to take that role in our lives? When we know the good news, why do we allow for other things to become more supreme in our lives? Why do we not live out a gospel-centered type of leadership? I, look, I was looking at the book of Hebrews one day, and Hebrews is a complicated book if you've ever tried to st- study it, right? And I was trying to get in the mind of the author, like, what, is, what are you trying to get across? And as I looked at each chapter, I felt as if the author was trying to make this airtight defense of Christ's supremacy to an audience, Hebrew audience, that had made other things greater. So for a Hebrew audience, other things that were great to them, he just goes and smashes every single one. So in chapter 1 of Hebrews, the whole chapter is about how Jesus is greater than the angels. Okay, well, we could say, okay, that sounds too personal. Then he gets into chapter 2. Jesus is greater than any man who's ever lived on earth or woman. Then he gets into chapter 3. Now it's going to start getting personal for a Hebrew audience. Jesus is greater than Moses. Ooh, greater than Moses? Like the first five books of of the Old Testament, we memorized it. What? Well, chapter 4... Jesus is even greater than the Sabbath. Now, this was personal, right? Because the Sabbath had become Lord to them. This is, they started doing and not doing things that were so regulatory that it became a burden. Sabbath was supposed to be a gift. And so is the good news. The gospel was supposed to be a gift. And then why does it somehow turn into a burden? In fact, I was doing some ancient research on Sabbath. And in the cultural norms of Sabbath, it was supposed to be an expression of the senses. They were supposed to be sensual Sabbaths. And I know that in our day and age, we can't even think of the word sensual without thinking sexual. But that was supposed to be a big part of it, too, for married people. Um, But food and sense and, and sexual pleasure, all of those things were supposed to be this abundance after a work week. And the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, had turned it into something where you, it was scarcity. You couldn't do anything. This is not our God. Our God is not a God of scarcity. But Jesus is even greater than the Sabbath. Then he says in chapter 5, Jesus is greater than the priesthood. 
that in chapter 6, Jesus is greater than Abraham, the father of our faith. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Then 7, Jesus is greater than the high priest. Wow. Then, Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. 9, Jesus is greater than the law. The law. These are the things that they lived by. And then chapter 10, Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system. This author took everything and everyone that was near and dear to a Jewish heart and then said, but even so, Jesus has supremacy over all of those things. And I just wonder if that author were to come to New Life Church, young adults, or you individually, what would the chapters include? Jesus is greater than social media in your life. Jesus is greater than your reputation. Stop trying to defend it. Jesus is greater than your popularity. Quit trying to achieve it. Jesus is greater than your worth. Jesus is greater than what you earn. Jesus is greater than your success. Jesus is greater than your good works. Jesus is greater than your greatest sin that you're ashamed of. Jesus is greater. What would he write? Chapter 11, after 10 chapters of saying he's supreme, chapter 11 says, here are all the people who walked by faith because they believed it. And he goes through person after person after person after person. And guess what? I still think that chapter is being written. And that God knows each one of your names and how you are walking by faith. And then chapter 12, he starts with, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, we fix our eyes on Jesus. That's how we run the race. Not not on our ability to run the race, but endurance to run the race. And the way that we do that is fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? He's the one who initiated it. He's the author. Perfecter, he's the completer. He will complete your faith. Scripture tells us that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So what happens when we don't believe that? When we don't live as though we, that Jesus is really greater, we start believing the lie. And we start to believe that this life that we're living, the story that is being written is a story about me. See, it's tempting for me to think that this story of my life is about me because after all, I'm in every scene of my story, right? So this is a story about me. Instead, this is a story about God. And so what happens is We want to take over ownership of it. So what I want you to do right now is just to imagine for a moment that you are a famous screenplay writer. And beyond that, you are the richest, most powerful creative producer. Well, it's not just even stop there because you can also direct. In fact, people from the entire globe are so enamored with you. They are awaiting your very next movie. And what will it be? With all your ability and power and resources, what will you create? What is the plot of this grand story that you are about to tell? And I wonder, will you include in it a part for yourself? 
Will you place yourself smack in the middle and make yourself the main character? Or will you do a little obscure part just to see if anyone notices that you're in it? Well, we may not all possess the skills or the finances to chart such a course, but nevertheless, deep inside every one of us is the desire to write and control our own script of life. While most of us realize that much of life is truly out of control, that doesn't stop us for one moment. No, in fact, when we sense that somebody else is sitting in the director's chair or framing a scene not to our liking, or heaven forbid, somebody is getting a better role than ours, we step in. Cut. You know, that's not how I saw this, this scene playing out, you say. You, you see this character, my character. They should have more. More, asks the voice that comes from a shadowed director's chair where you believe you ought to be sitting. Yes, you reply. More, more lines, more opportunities, more beauty, wealth, success, and friends. And you continue with more passion than before. Better. This time, the director remains silent. But that doesn't stop you. Instead, thinking that you have a convincing argument, you continue. Better marriage, better children, better job, better house, better car, and just better family members in general. Pleased that you have made your point, you pause for response, and then the director stands up and he speaks. Do you want to be in this chair? Do you really want to be in charge? Do you think that you can write, direct, and produce this story? Ignorant of the weight of the question and drunk with possibilities of writing your script the way that you'd always imagine, your answer is deliberate. Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. How often do we do that? How often do we compare this script that God has lovingly given us and take out a pen and start deleting lines or adding scenes. And we compare our script that was designed perfectly for each one of us. We compare our script with somebody else's. And we assume she's happier because she has a better script. Or we assume that person is failing because they got a bad part. Instead of understanding who Jesus is, the author the perfecter. Every morning, I like to wake up and imagine that my script for his story, my little part, is being delivered to me every day, just at the foot of my bed. I like to imagine that because I want to check my heart's attitude. And I can either just leave that script there and go on with my day and do my own thing because, after all, it's my story. I can pick it up and I can modify it, or I can pick it up and play my part as written. That's the hard part, as written. And I can't play my part as written if I don't know the storyteller. So we have to know Jesus. The enemy will tell you that 
Happiness is the pursuit, and it's not. The pursuit is Jesus. When we pursue Jesus, we get the abundant life. When we pursue the abundant life or happiness, we get dysfunction, depression, disillusionment, sin, acting out in every kind of imaginable way. You see, happiness makes a really good byproduct, but a terrible pursuit. The pursuit is Jesus. So when we talk about being a leader who puts Jesus at the center to be the gospel center, I think, first of all, you have to know the gospel. You have to know the gospel. And whether it's the whole story that you have memorized, because I like to compel people to do that, or it's as Max Lucado said it in just an elevator speech, he said the gospel like this, you come before the judgment seat of God full of rebellion and mistakes, and because of his justice, he cannot dismiss it. But because of his love, he cannot dismiss you. So in an act that stunned the heavens, he died on the cross and took your sin. And now God's justice and his love are equally honored, and you, his beloved child, are forgiven. That's a beautiful way to paint the gospel. And the gospel is to know it, not just know how to behave. To be a Christian means I'm going to lay down my life, not just do good stuff. And then secondly, we teach the gospel. So every word that comes out of your mouth has to align with what is true about God. Because it's his script, not yours. You can't change it. So we, we teach the gospel, and I'm very passionate about teaching the Bible where God is at the center of the story. If you were at kids' camp and served with us, we did this exercise where God is at the center of the story. So it's not a story about Jonah in the belly of a fish, or Daniel in the lion's den, or Paul and Silas in jail. It's something about God. It's not David and Goliath fighting. It's God is victorious. It's not Jonah in a belly of a fish. Who really cares? It's God answers prayer. And then you get to someone like Rahab and you say, how do we even teach that? She's a prostitute and she lies and then she's rewarded for it. And this kind of gets conjumbled until we say it's not about Rahab. It's about God. And Joshua 2 tells us why she did what she did in hiding the spies. And it was because she had heard of the renown of the God of Israel. And so I would title that message, God is the famous one. And he wants to be in a relationship with me. So we teach the gospel where God is always at the center, not me and not any other supporting actor or actress in scripture. And then we live the gospel. And living the gospel means that I put action to what I believe and say. It's when Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. We live what we say we believe, which means we are forgiving always. If you're holding a grudge right now, you're not living the gospel. If there's someone in this room that you need to ask forgiveness from, do it quickly do it readily. 
If there's someone you need to call today and ask for forgiveness, or somebody has asked forgiveness of you and you've withheld it, give it freely. That's how you live the gospel. That's how you have Christ at the center. Without that, we are passing on bad news. Not the euangelion, not the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have some time for discussion. But I'd just like you to close your eyes and consider your knowledge of the gospel. Maybe, maybe it hasn't become clear to you. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time today. And then how do you teach it? Do you teach Jesus at the center, or is there something else that you've added, a kind of a Jesus plus philosophy of theology? And then are you living it? Is your life aligned with the good news? So Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave your son Jesus so freely. We thank you that it is your love that compels us to be in relationship with you. Help us to fix our eyes on you and not our script, and not anybody else's script, but you. We pray that you would be glorified and that the good news would reach every corner of this earth in our lifetime. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, for discussion, I, I have these three questions. And you can answer any of them or in any order or whatever your table decides. But the first one is, how has the enemy lied to you about the pursuit of happiness? How has he repackaged what the abundant life was supposed to be? Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give it abundantly. But when we start chasing after that, what are the dysfunctions? How has he lied to you? And then Number two, if the author of Hebrews were to write about New Life Church, this group, or even your specific life, what chapters would he have to address that have somehow found supremacy over Christ in your life? What is Jesus to be greater than? And just confess those things. And I think a God-centered, gospel-centered kind of way of leading is by our testimony. And it, isn't it so interesting when we give testimonies and we hear people's testimonies, they'll get up and they'll say, my life was in shambles. I was walking in sin or whatever it was, right? And we start with I. I was in sin. What if we were to live a gospel-centered life by telling our testimony where God is the first subject we talk about? God in his great love God being the creator, God being the pursuer of my life, God, the author of my script, in all of his perfection, dot, dot, dot. And then we say, but my sin, I chose, I chose. And maybe some people, your parents or family members have sinned against you, but God is greater than any sin that was committed against you just as he's greater than any sin you've committed. But we talk about how sin mars that beautiful picture of who God is. And then in Christ, being greater and conquering sin and death, so that, number four, we can live in victory. What if we were to tell our testimony with God at the beginning and victory in life at the end? So we're going to give you some time. Josh, how much time do they have? About 10 minutes, yeah. So take the next 10 minutes or so and just um, choose one of these.
Any of them? You can have some time at your table. You can start. All right. Hey, you guys. I hope you're having some good conversations. We were having some at our table, but I, I would love to hear some of your kind of your thoughts or your discussions. So, um, wow, we already have a hand over here. Josh is going to run around with the microphone. So this is like really hard for me to talk about, but um, I was taken advantage of sexually. And like through it, God, I asked him, I said, I said, okay, I'm not going to be loved. Nobody's ever going to love me. I'm not going to find happiness. I'm not going to find somebody who cares about me because this happened and they're not going to love me for that. But then God was like, no, I have better plans for you. You're going to be happy. You're going to find somebody who is going to love you and be there for you. And he brought me Michael. And hmm. Michael's, Michael is that person that's just helped me through stuff and now I'm happy and whenever that comes up God's like nope remember what I brought you through remember I brought you through this and you're mine and I love you you're mine and I love you that's the best message there yeah thanks for sharing um hi so something that spoke to me the first thing how has the enemy lied to you about your pursuit of happiness um for me, it's more of a facade of happiness. So I always thought, oh, I'm this bubbly person. People tell me I'm this bubbly person. Like, I have to be this happy, bubbly person. So the pursuit was literally happiness, like, stamped on me. Like, okay, you are happy. So if you're not, something's wrong. Get it together. And so not ever feeling the ability to be genuine with, like, oh, actually, I'm not, I'm actually not doing so hot today. Like, okay. Right. Like, that's okay to say. So the enemy, the enemy lied to me a lot about if you say that you're not happy or if you don't feel, like, if you don't feel it, then you're going to be abandoned. Like, people are going to be like, well, you're not happy. Like, I don't want to be around you. Like, right. who are you? And so, As if your whole identity yes. is that. So, that's why people want to be with you instead of exactly. our identity rooted in Christ and what he's done. In fact, I, I raised my kids to, when we would try, when we would compliment them because compliments can actually turn into burdens, mm. like you're suggesting. So um, to try to tell each other how you see Christ in that person, yeah, like because story. now the focus is on Christ in you instead of you having to perform. Yeah. But I love that renewing your identity. It's great. Um, hello. Okay. I used to hang out with the wrong crowd a long time ago, but since I came to church, I've changed. And ever since then, I'm happy at church. And since I've hanged out with the wrong crowd, I'm not doing that anymore. And I used to smoke, but not no more. I quit that because I've been coming to church a lot. Yeah. And it's not church that does that. It's Jesus here. It's Jesus that is redeeming broken places in your life. And he's doing it with these people who are the church. But just always remember, it's, it's him who is at work within you. And he will never, ever cease working till you see him, okay? Yeah. So um, when I was 10, I was actually diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, 
that point in time, it was really hard. I felt like it was a burden to my family because medical supplies, doctor's appointments, it was, it got hard. Um, it had actually started a really bad depressive state and really bad anxiety. Yeah. And through, through Christ, I have actually gotten over a lot of it. Um, I actually help a lot of kids with type 1 diabetes. I go to camps. I volunteer with them. And for them to see me 12 years later, you know, still alive, still well, still happy, it, it really helps. So I feel like being a leader with that and, you know, the devil kind of had a really bad hold on me at that yeah. point in time. Right. Because it was so hard to deal with it. No one else had it. No one else was like me. I was so different. And he made that different unique because a lot of people don't have that. A lot of people don't see that struggle. Right. So when people see the struggle that's in me and they still see me lifted up, the only thing I can say is the power of Christ. Power that's of Christ. it. Same so thing. it has really pushed me to be the person that I am. Yeah. And it's really helped me with um, helping other people yeah. who are like me and, you know, who, even people who aren't like me, you know, yes. trying to get through things. I have a testimony. Right. And I am a living testimony. Yes, you are. Christ. So it really helps me. And, and number one stuck out to me pretty well with, with my diabetes. So, yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. You know, um, the gospel is not Jesus coming to make your life happy. The gospel is Jesus said himself, in this world, you will have, yeah. We will have troubles. We will have trials. We will have tribulations. So that's a given. There's not something wrong with you when you are in difficult times. That's why James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. That was the race we're running is endurance, not a happy skipping trail. And it's a lie of the enemy when you hear people say, God wants you to be happy. No, God wants you to be free. The gospel is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive, okay? So thanks for sharing, you guys. It was so fun to be here. I hope we'll get to spend some time together in the future. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Pastor Dr. Michelle Anthony. Uh, we had a blast. Um, well, let's, uh, let's pray real quick, and then we'll dismiss. But thanks again, um, man. This, there's a lot to chew on, a lot to think through. And we want to encourage you. Uh, me and Michelle were talking at, the, at our table. And uh, we want to encourage you, nuance these things during the week. Um, allow the word that kept coming up was extraction, how Jesus um, has this way of extracting these deep wounds, these deep hurts, these deep sins uh, out of our lives. And that doesn't just happen in this context on a Sunday morning, nor should it. Um, but it should be this ongoing uh, life journey that we're on with the Lord. So go back to this topic this week as you're uh, reading your Bible and as you're praying and ask God and, and uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that extracting work in you and see um, in what ways he would have you walk in the way everlasting, as the psalmist says. So anyway, let's pray and then we'll dismiss. Father, we're so thankful for your work in our lives. Holy Spirit, we uh, welcome that work. We say, come, let your kingdom come, let your will be done in our lives on this earth as it is in heaven. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would lead us, 
to be the people who have a gospel-shaped and gospel-centered life, relationships, mission, leadership. Uh, I pray that everything we touch in life would be for the glory of God and lived out through the empowering work and presence of the Holy Spirit. And we say, uh, vulnerably in independence, Lord, we are nothing without you. So Jesus, would you be our all in all? Would you be everything we need? Would you be our, uh, our healing? Would you be our wholeness? Would you be our peace? Would you be our life? And would you lead us in the way everlasting this week? I pray that you would bless these young adults, give them safety as they travel this week and as they go to work and school and anything else they're doing. I pray that you would bless them and uh, allow everything they put their hands to to succeed and prosper. And we give all the glory and honor and praise to you, Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name and everybody said amen and amen.